0: As most of you are probably aware, the world is in kind of a chaotic state right now, and especially the United States, um, because of the brutal murdering of George Floyd. So, um, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and in the hope for justice for George Floyd, Black Lives Matter.
1: Black Lives Matter. Black
0: Lives Matter. Black
2: Lives Matter.
3: Black Lives Matter.
2: Black Lives Matter.
0: Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black, Black Lives Matter. matter. We
4: all stand together.
5: After Sean Connery left the James Bond franchise, again, in 1973, Roger Moore was recruited for the leading role. In his debut outing, directed again by Guy Hamilton of Goldfinger fame, Bond visits New York, New Orleans, and the Caribbean on a mission tracking a mysterious drug lord and dictator who plans to flood the United States with free heroin with the help of voodoo icon, Baron Samedi. Welcome to Live and Let Die.
6: Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Our contact meant that we can make this work. Probably, Podcast Network intercepted an encrypted audio message regarding podcasters assembled. For this season, the Podcast Network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the Bond movies, and a countdown to the latest film in the franchise, No Time to Die. Your primary objective is to infiltrate Podcasters Assemble by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com, utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone, the latest from QBranch. For a full mission report, go to probablywork.com. We're all counting on you,
0: 003. Assemble. Podcasters. Assemble. This is
5: Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs Podcast. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History.
2: Hi, my name's Tyler, and I'm one of the hosts of Too Young for This Trek, a Star Trek
7: podcast. Yo, this is Corey
6: Torgeson, photographer,
7: film nut, and podcast hopper. I'm MC from Best Animated Shows Ever. So far, this is Justin
1: Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co.
3: I'm Megan, the other half of Significant Otter Co.
4: Hi, my name's Bill from the Tal podcast.
2: And I'm here to talk about.
3: Live and let die.
2: Live or let die. Live and let die. Live or die. Live and let die.
3: The eighth movie in the James Bond series.
6: Yeah. Do you like goat head cheese? How about Princess Amidala? Do herpetology, biomedical engineering, or American occult history pique your interest? If you said yes to any of these, then Live and Let Die is the film for you.
5: Live and Let Die is the eighth film in the series, but is based on the second Bond novel by Ian Fleming.
1: Okay, so it's only been about eight movies, but we're on our third James Bond. Roger Moore.
6: Let me start this off by saying I do not like Roger Moore.
2: So this is actually... The only James Bond movie I have ever seen.
5: Live and Let Die is the first Roger Moore movie.
2: And I've now seen it three times
5: this year, strictly for podcasting. And it's not a great omen of things to come.
0: It's pretty bad. I'm a fan of Roger Moore as James Bond. I think that he brings a levity and a silliness
1: to the role. Roger Moore was the Bond I grew up on.
6: In terms of Bond, I feel like he's your friend's single dad going through a midlife crisis who applies for a role in a sexually charged film series.
1: Uh, Because of late night TV, USA Network, I must have seen Octopussy at least 14 times uh, when I was a kid. Uh, About the same for Live and Let Die.
0: But I'm not a huge fan of Live and Let Die. They just kept them on loop. Um, This movie, I remember when when I first got the all the James Bond movies and watched them all, I got to this and I was like, what is this? I feel like it just didn't get played in the marathons that were the way that I watched James Bond as a kid.
1: He did have prior spy type acting experience in the show, The
0: Saint. So it was um, not one that was part of my personal
6: James Bond lexicon. After voluntarily releasing Diamonds Are Forever, what could possibly be worse? So here we are.
1: Okay, a note about the plot and elements of this movie. I'm recording at a very problematic time in American politics, with the murder of a black man by the police a few days ago and riots happening as I speak. I can't begin to understand how much privilege I have to be worried about recording a podcast about a 47-year-old movie instead of fighting for my life. But now I know that it's not the time to be silent, and I stand for empathy, compassion, and humanity.
5: The movie is actually very different from the book, but both are, unfortunately, from a modern perspective... <clears throat> Not great when it comes to handling African-American representation for slightly different reasons.
0: It's not that it's bad. It's got all the things you want in a Bond movie. As a kid, I think that I was less interested in it because I didn't really understand the heroine subplot.
1: Looking back at these movies, every James Bond movie takes from the era it was made. You know, Little Troy didn't, Little Troy was used to James
0: Bond movies where, you know, there was a space station and Bond had to go up there with laser guns and blow the thing out of the sky. And this one wasn't about that kind of a threat.
1: We had the Cold War and the early Bonds, the space race, and now the exploitation era. So you can't blame the Bond movies for creating craziness. They only show what people are interested in at the time. Mostly terrible clothing and violence against women.
0: It's weirdly the threat in this movie is kind of black people. And that's where the exploitation problem comes into play in this film is it's made by white people. We all know that. The James Bond movies, you know, mmm, pretty pretty white. But the, the the they did a weird thing in this and that they made every villain is black. Every single one, unless you count JW Pepper as a villain. Every single one of the villains is black in this movie. But they're all also competent. This movie is funny. This movie is a, you know, an action comedy. But the jokes are almost never at the expense of the black characters i i think that was an attempt at equality by the folks who were making the movie but it's not enough like you still made a movie where like other than two characters every person of color on screen is a murderous villain and that's terrible
7: this movie is all about chase scenes my favorite one moment is probably his escapes. There are a lot of vehicle chases in this movie. He has three really good ones in this film.
2: You've got car chases, pitmobile chases, boat chases. I think there's a
1: bus chase, there's a train chase. What I did notice from this movie is that they try to give Roger Moore a head start. Taking the best working elements from the first few Bonds, like the limited gadgets, his magnetic watch with a saw, a decent chase scene that almost directly copied the Las Vegas car scene, but this time in a tiny plane, a fight scene in a train, a la Russia with Love.
0: They uh, really put a focus on that, starting with, um, I guess with Honor Majesty's Secret Service had the pretty intense chase scene, then Diamonds Are Forever had a couple good ones, and then this movie has tons of chase scenes um, or, or just car stunt scenes
5: The cold open does something a little different from your typical Bond outing. I haven't seen this movie in a very long time
6: and didn't realize how much I'd forgotten, but the beginning of this film is very surprising. Uh, Coming from the action-packed craziness of the latter Connery films, uh, this is very serious and it felt like they took a step back to say, okay, we've messed up a
7: little bit let's see
6: what we can do to repair this franchise.
7: Probably my favorite kill, oh, it's probably the UK diplomat um, at the very beginning. They, they use some device to like put pressure in his translation device and it kills him somehow.
1: The movie opens with the murder of a diplomat or spy with a sonic bomb? That's crazy technology.
7: That, that's fantastic. It, like I have no idea how it would actually work, but it killed him. So I guess that's one for the bad guys, but it it was really odd.
1: Why would you sell heroin if you have the technology to murder people over their radio or phone?
5: We see three different locations, the United Nations in New York, um, a funeral slash parade in New Orleans, and some weird ritual on a made up island in the Caribbean.
6: I feel like this witch doctor and dancing scene in San Monique is passable only because it's very short. And you don't get a lot of time to see the Baphomet hat he got at a thrift store.
5: And we see three different assassinations that we presume are linked.
3: Favorite kill? It would be the jazz funeral and second line in New Orleans.
1: One of my favorite kills in the movie is the spy on Bourbon Street getting stabbed while staking out the bar in New Orleans.
3: I absolutely love New Orleans and the culture of that city.
1: One, you're the only person on the street. You're literally wearing a full suit in 700-degree New Orleans weather watching a bar in the daytime. What the hell, man?
3: Hearing the slow cadence of the jazz funeral song transports you to that corner in the French Quarter where the agent is watching over the Filet-O-Fish club. A
7: funeral procession comes along in New Orleans, and the guy turns to another guy and asks whose funeral it is.
3: And... Joined by another individual whom he asks, Hey, whose funeral is it? And the henchman, we come to find out, says, it's yours.
7: And the guy says yours and he stabs him. And then they just sort of put the casket over him and walk him down the street as they have a party.
1: Two, I love when the funeral jazz band kicks into the second line. They later use the same kill to kill James Bond's CIA counterpart with the same people, same outfits... Do this have like 50 people hanging around the corner, just in case they need to murder
3: somebody. And then the whole group just breaks out into a second line and everyone's dancing and enjoying themselves. And I thought it was a great way to kill someone.
6: This kill in New Orleans is why I figured I might actually like this film. I didn't know why I had given it so much flack. Um, This is just very creative and very calm. And it's the kind of thing that could be real. Uh, No lasers, nothing wild. Uh, Just this very smooth kill in the empty streets of New Orleans.
3: And it just makes it better that that first kill was just a setup for the second kill later in the movie. That being said, I did make myself a Sazerac after
4: watching the scene.
1: Because when in Rome...
4: Oh, oh, what a treat we have here. All the opening credits, and we are listening to uh, Paul McCartney... Uh, is it Wings? I think it might be Wings. Doing Live and Let Die. The song for this
6: movie
5: is awesome. And then we reach the intro. And I hate it. This is both one of the worst Bond movies. Bang, down, down. And it also has one of the best songs in the franchise.
4: Bang, 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 live and let die.
5: It has a
1: great theme song.
4: Live and let die! ding ding
1: Okay that was not the version by Paul McCartney but everyone just remembers that
4: Now this, this is probably one of the most iconic Bond themes ever uh, It went on to win an Academy Award, like wow, and uh, it was almost actually not used
6: uh, I hated it before and I still hate it, that was the one thing I never forgot I gotta say though the visuals that go with the song are a little weird uh, I had forgotten how often they played the intro through the entire film, uh, much like the previous movies. And every time it plays, it really just strips you right out of whatever's happening, it makes you feel like you should throw on your bell-bottoms and strut your stuff in the
4: middle of the dance floor.
1: Actually, I think the cover in The Flay of Soul in New Orleans was even better,
4: but can't go
1: wrong with Carney.
4: Because, yeah, the director didn't think it really fit the movie very well. It was kind of like a last minute decision to actually use it, and what a good decision that was.
5: There's definitely some interesting voodoo motifs going on visually, but compared to some of the other title sequences we've had up to this point, it's... it's... it's alright.
3: Does M now make house calls?
5: So we start with M showing up at Bond's place, where Bond shows off his new watch from Q. Oh, holy crap, did you see that?
4: Bond has a smartwatch.
3: I feel like when Sean Connery was James Bond, they kept sending him to the office. But now that we have this new Bond, M comes to his house and tells him what his next job duty is.
4: <laughs> oh, I love this bit. M just walks in, Bond makes him a coffee, and M's just like looking at this weird contraption that makes the coffee. Just like, does that thing do anything else? <laughs> he just completely shits all over it. <laughs> so good.
3: Even bringing along Money Penny. <laughs>
4: Yeah. Oh, I just love Miss Moneypenny. (laughs) She shows up in this.
0: I love the introduction of Roger Moore as James Bond because it is a completely different character than Sean Connery's James Bond. With George Lazenby, he was trying to be Sean Connery. He tried to take on the affectations of Sean Connery. Roger Moore's first scene is him like... Uh, hiding an the daughter of an Italian diplomat of some sort from Q, who showed up in his home, it's a sex farce in the middle of this James Bond movie. Not in the middle, at the start of this James Bond movie. That's that's the introduction to Roger Moore's character. Is a scene straight out of like Porky's, where the teenager is trying to hide a girl from his. I've never seen Porky's actually, so that's probably a bad comparison. oh
4: yeah, hey, Jabella, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She knows what you've been up to, Bond. She's got you back. Straight back then.
0: This
6: intro scene where Bond gets his mission is also very classy. I feel like this is the starting moment where they could have ruined the film uh, with kind of this Scooby-Doo style thing of you know the girl and M and Bond all running in and out of different doors, uh, conveniently not catching each other, but I like that they use politeness as
7: Bond's means of guiding and retaining M. My favorite uh, gadget, even though it only gets used twice uh, in the film, is um, the watch.
1: The watch was a pretty fantastic
7: gadget.
3: I feel like there was only one real gadget and that was the watch.
1: The writers found random elements to use it too. Like, taking off that girl's dress. Bond says something like it could deflect a bullet as well?
4: <sighs> a super magnetic watch that can deflect
7: bullets. My ass. First, he uses it to take a teaspoon off of M, uh, which annoys M immediately
6: after bond is given this magnetic watch he shows it off attracting m's spoon and then grabs the bowl in to return it to m now i'm not from england but i feel like that is a rude thing to do or sheer magnetism Yeah,
4: thanks James. Uh, That's a very good use of a taxpayer's money, Uh, using uh, your bullet-deflecting, super-magnetic watch to uh, undo a woman's dress.
6: However, immediately following, I do like all of the cheesy scenes of how Bond uses the watch to slide open the coat closet door and undo the girl's dress zipper.
4: Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, being a UK taxpayer. Pretty upset, to be honest.
7: And then um, he fails to use it again later on uh, when he's actually trapped with the crocodiles.
3: And who knew it would get so much play? That little magnetic thing worked a couple times. I think there was a saw in there. It just, it was the most important gadget he had. And I think the only gadget.
4: This is the 70s, guys. Bond has a smartwatch. You know, just let that sink in, you know, let it sink in. It brings
0: in this levity that I feel like is more akin to Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones than it is Sean Connery's James Bond. Roger Moore is suave and cool, but he also occasionally gets way over his head and has to kind of fumble his way out with, a, you know, a, a quick smile. And that's, that just feels very different from Sean Connery. But because I love the Roger Moore movies and love the Roger Moore movies as a kid, it feels like James Bond to me. And it's great. I love it.
1: This movie is about Bond investigating the murder of some MI6 agents helping the CIA investigate a corrupt island dictator, and at the same time, a heroin-smuggling gangster.
5: This movie once again has a new Felix.
1: New Felix!
5: uh, But the same M and Moneypenny, even though we're on our third Bond.
1: Although in this movie, he just seems like a disappointed babysitter. He has to bail James out at least four times, I think, uh, and every time he's just the guy with the checkbook. Last movie, Felix was stern with Bond about several things, uh, forced him to stay in his room. This time he just covers up the world's worst spies' exploits.
5: So Bond heads to New York.
1: Bond goes to a pretty burned out Harlem, but I'm sure if he went to Times Square, we'd see how terrible the government let it get in the 70s.
5: Where his driver is assassinated on the road. As cheesy as it was, the dart from the car's rear view mirror was kind of clever. A car with a mirror gun but
4: needlessly elaborate. Is that, is that something you guys have in the US? (laughs) We don't have that over here in the UK. (laughs) Yeah, he took that car into the MOT, (laughs) for its MOT, it would never pass. Uh, Bond gets picked up from the
0: airport in New York City to start on the case, and immediately his driver gets killed.
4: (laughs) They were like, "Uh, yeah, sorry, you've got some sort of a lethal weapon in the side of your car? That's not legal? (laughs) Can you take that off,
5: please? I'm just thinking about all the variables that would have to go right in order for that to actually work. Just like from a physics standpoint, you know? <laughs> uh, that still causes a cool crash. <laughs> and the car is careening out of control down the highway
0: as Bond is trying to drive it from the backseat.
6: After Bond leaves the airport, he hops into a chauffeur to take him to Felix Leader. And I enjoy this chill assassination attempt using some type of poison dart or something built into a car to kill the driver to make this look just kind of like a normal car accident. Once again, this gave me a lot of hope for the film because they're being very chill instead of doing another wacky car chase scene.
0: It's a pretty fun action scene. Um, Is it a necessary action scene for the plot? Kind of, I mean, it's how James Bond starts looking for Mr. Big, who will be, that, that will be important to the plot, but if you look at it from the villain's perspective, nah, it's really bad. In fact, if you look at any of this movie from the villain's perspective, this movie doesn't hold up at all, because why did they kill James Bond's driver? Why didn't they kill James Bond? He's there. You clearly know that that guy's coming to investigate you. Why are you murdering the driver and not James Bond?
1: The best vehicles were those driven by the cab driver, mostly because of the running commentary. 125th, you got a honky on your tail. I thought it was funny that Bond gave him 20 bucks to follow a car that was also employed by Mr. Big. I mean, that's a $115 tip today, that he's getting paid extra to take someone to his boss. He would have to do it anyway. Ooh,
4: ouch. Wow. A Ku Klux Klan joke. Um, yeah. Um, I'm guessing that just happened. Oof.
0: One of my favorite little gags in this movie is when uh, Bond has had the taxi driver uh, drive him all around Harlem to try and find where uh, where Kananga is hanging out. Well, I guess it's Mr. Biggie's tracking at this point. He doesn't know that they're the
6: same person. All right, so now we're inside Filet of Soul, and this is just the biggest diss to
0: Bond. And they end up at the uh, the cafe, and he orders his drink from the bar. And the waiter sends him over to the booth by the wall. And then the waiter brings over his bourbon and water that he ordered. And Bond pulls out some cash to try and bribe him. And he's like, oh, I'd like something else. uh, A little bit of information. And then the door or the the wall like swings open and the whole booth twists around behind the wall. And Bond is now like captured in the lair of the enemy. Uh, Set him down at a table
6: and walk up with his drink order. And as he's trying to get his drink, just spin the wall around.
0: But the gag that I like here is that after uh, the wall swings away, the waiter like plucked the money from Bond's hand, tucks it into his pocket and then takes a sip of Bond's drink.
6: Uh, I think this is really cool. Again, this movie just like starts off so strong with all of the spy stuff and espionage. And while a spinning wall may be kind of silly, it's it's perfect. It's great. I love this.
5: Once again, there's some really interesting set decoration going on here. There's this weird spiny wall thingy. Underneath the club, we get to meet um,
0: Mr. Big. But first, we meet some of his subordinates. Uh, the two I want to talk about, of course, are Solitaire
5: and Tee So we meet Mr. Big, his claw hand henchman Tee
4: It's the claw. He <laughs> got the clamps. <laughs> you ain't gonna clamp your fingers, Bond.
5: <laughs> and the Bond woman of the movie... Solitaire, played by the lovely Jane Seymour. Damn! Or as 90s kids remember her, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman.
1: Let's just say Dr. Quinn is hot in this movie. This movie has a ton of henchmen in it. They all travel with Kananga slash Mr. Big. They all have respective costume changes wherever they go. And at first, they seem pretty professional.
7: Probably my favorite henchman moment is when we first see the guy with the prosthetic arm.
1: Teehee, sure, he could be played as a, you know, a heavy, large black man with a hook. He actually has lines, timing.
0: Teehee, on the other hand, is a dude with a uh, claw hand that is the fakest looking special effect prosthetic, perhaps, that I've ever seen. It looks real bad. He's clearly just got his hand inside of this little, like, soup can that has a claw on the end of it, Um, but he uses it to bend, bend James Bond's gun in half, and ooh, look how intimidating he is.
7: Uh, he takes a gun off a bond and he just like bends the barrel of the gun to show how powerful the prosthetic is. Uh, That's a really good moment.
3: Favorite henchman. I really enjoyed Whisper because, I mean, who doesn't love the strong and silent type? And he just always got the job done.
6: So shortly after we meet Solitaire, uh, there's a scene where you get to see the backs of the cards for a split second.
5: Are those? No. No are those really trademark 007 tarot cards that solitaire has and they say 007 yeah yeah they are look at the back of those cards it literally has 007 written on them which i thought was a very creative touch so solitaire is mr big's
0: well i guess he's kananga's i don't mr big and kananga are the same person spoilers she is his um his muse kind of she she's She reads tarot cards and can see the future. And the way this movie presents it, this is true fact. She can see the future.
1: I wonder if her card reading would be real in their universe.
4: I need to get me a card reading PA. She's so accurate. (laughs) Uh, And of course, Bond can read cards too. Yeah, because he's James Bond after all. You know, he basically knows everything about everything. That's kind of what I'm learning from these movies. It's like,
1: does the James Bond universe have actual magic? It's a thing she can do. Um, And as
0: Bond is talking to her, he holds up, draws a card, and it's the lover, and he goes, hmm, us? And she's like, oh, no, absolutely not. But she knows. She's like, did the cards just tell me to have sex with that man? Because if the cards tell me to have sex with that man, I will. This will become important later. I mean, it has to.
1: Because Bond has to have rolled a natural 20 in charisma and luck. Low in constitution, though, because he constantly gets knocked out for, like, no reason.
0: And finally, of course, here we meet Mr. Big, who opens the door, sees Bond staying there, tells his men to go kill that honky, closes the door again. What a great intro for a villain. It's just like, he does not care. He's like, take care of this. You guys have had a chance to murder him already in the taxi cab. You've got a chance to murder him again. Get it done. And instead of murdering him, they don't. And they go out into a back alley to kill him there.
3: Favorite villain moment? I just really like that the bad guys don't really care that who James Bond is. Most times they don't even let him explain who he is. He's nobody to them. He's just someone who's getting in the way.
5: So after Bond introduces himself, Mr. Big has one of the funniest lines in the movie. He says, names is for tombstones,
3: baby. A lot of times in previous movies, uh, everyone knew who he was and was like, oh, James Bond. Here, let me show you all of the secrets to my plan. But especially in the beginning of this movie, people just like slap him in the face and kick him out. <laughs> and I kind of get a kick out of that.
1: James Bond seems helpless a bit in this movie, mostly stumbling his way into places and acting very British.
0: And then Bond gets saved again because these these guys are not good at killing James Bond. They're like, not played for laughs, but they are also terrible at killing James Bond.
1: It starts with him trying to hide an Italian agent in his house when M comes to visit, he's driven by the CIA in New York when Whisper tries to kill him in the Pentmobile, and he stumbles into both Filet of Soul restaurants, and every time he's just basically taken care of by the bad guys. So when push comes to shove, he can fight and plan, but man, he just like lucks out.
0: After New York City, the next stop on Bond's journeys takes him to a uh, a hotel. I think he's in Saint Monique, I believe it's called, which is the the fictional uh, locale that we go to a lot in this movie. Or maybe he's in New Orleans and Saint Monique. Is off the coast of New Orleans, the geography is a little confusing. In any case, he gets to the hotel only to be told that a Mrs. Bond is waiting for him.
6: So now Bond is walking to his bungalow and they have this like dinner theater with a lot of voodoo dancing and stuff going on. And I give this a pass because it is dinner theater, it's not supposed to be like an accurate representation of what happened. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, let it slide this time. When Bond gets to his hotel in Santa
2: Monique, the first thing he does is undress and start filling up a bath, which
6: I can totally respect. Um, he then checks the room for bugs. All right, so this is the first time that I can remember seeing a spy kit. Like Bond has a kit of spy things, and it is adorable. Uh, and orders a bottle of champagne.
4: Again, good call, Bond. Oh Bond orders a bottle of Bollinger. Oh I do love a bottle of bolly. can't often afford it, but you know when the, when the occasion arises, <sighs> love a bottle of bolly.
2: Uh, but that's where the normalcy ends and things get a bit weird. So before the champagne comes, he gets in the tub and we see my favorite gadget of the movie, which is this fancy little gold shaving bench. It's just a bench with all of his shaving equipment in the tub and a mirror. And I want one of those. Like I would probably shave way more often if I could do it while sitting in hot water.
1: So that hotel was nice and all, but how disgusting is it that the bathroom has carpet? So the weird thing is he gets in there as he knows his champagne's
2: coming. And so then he's gonna have to get out and like be like cold and uncomfortable.
0: When his champagne comes, and that's exactly what happens. In the hotel room, he finds some ladies' clothes... He decides he needs to freshen up, so he gets in a bathtub, where the bad guys open a vent above the bathtub and drop a snake in, and you think, aha, here's where the bad guys are finally going to kill James Bond by dropping a snake in. Also, he kills a snake with aftershave and a cigar. But instead, Whisper, the the goon who killed the guy in the beginning of the movie, this henchman, I think, was the one who dropped the snake in, so he dropped a poisonous snake into Bond's bathroom, and then he goes and comes in Bond's front door to deliver champagne. To distract Bond and get him out of the bathtub. So then Bond ends up seeing the snake and torching it using his cigar and some aftershave.
2: But mostly it's being uncomfortable because you're wet. I think we can all agree that logistically, it makes no sense.
0: Just if he would left the snake in the vent and then not done anything, James Bond would be dead. So this is, I believe, the third time that they've completely failed to murder James Bond in this movie?
5: We're introduced to another Bond girl in this movie sent by the CIA, uh, rookie agent Rosie. So now we meet Rosie whom Bond disarms. Then shortly after Bond kills the snake, what's
0: that? Someone's at the door and the door opens and a gun points in and Bond grabs the gun and flips the girl over and holy smokes. It's it's the other Bond girl for this movie. Uh, then Rosie says that
5: she worked with Felix Leder.
1: Of note, This movie is the first for James Bond to have a romantic relationship that's interracial.
5: Now, as cool as it is to have the first African-American Bond girl in the 70s, unfortunately, I don't think her character was really written all that well. And then Bond mansplains the very gun that she
6: walked in with after she said she was with the CIA. Yeah, smooth
5: move. That's how you get the ladies, Bond. I don't blame the actress because i don't know that she had a lot to work with
1: rosie carver turns out to be a very annoying turncoat but to be honest she wasn't good for any team
5: but even though she's a rookie agent she's still nothing about the way she acted really seemed all that credible and yeah she might be inexperienced compared to bond but they they went out of their way to make her seem completely unqualified uh we've got solitaire of course and then um
0: we've got this woman who I can't even remember her name. So one of the things that is not very well
6: explained in this movie is whether or not Rosie does believe in voodoo. Uh, I tend to think that she does, but this particular scene with the hat on the bed, you know, she freaks out. And I think that is supposed to be a threat to her to complete her job, as well as giving us an example of her fear of voodoo.
0: She has slightly
1: more to do than Plenty O'Toole in the last movie, but not much. If she's supposed to let Bond get killed, why would she try and stop Quirrell Jr.?
5: To add insult to injury, her character actually ended up being a double agent. Because,
0: listen, she shows up and she's like, Oh, I'm your ally. I'm really superstitious. Oh, it turns out I'm actually working for the baddies and I got shot.
5: And after she sleeps with Bond,
0: then she immediately dies? And she's deaded she just shows up to like pretend to be a good guy to take bond to the bad guy's lair which why did the bad guys have her take him to the lair because why didn't she just kill him and then she sleeps with bond and there's a great line where she's like you're not gonna shoot me after that are you and bond's like oh i certainly wasn't gonna shoot you before because bond is a pig in this movie and then she gets killed there's just so many things wrong with that picture Rosie Carver was her name. I apologize, I had to look it up. But I do have to give one shout out here. Um, again, this is the the makers of the Bond franchise trying not to be racist as they make a movie that's kind of like explicitly racist at its core by having James Bond hook up with a uh, African-American actress. This is the first time that Bond has been seen on screen hooking up with a black woman. Um, and, and like I said, I, I think it's an attempt to not be totally racist, but in the middle of their racist movie. You know, it only goes so far, um, especially because Bond apparently knows that she's a villain and just sleeps with her for the hell of it, I guess. And then says, well, you know, I'm going to kill you, but I wasn't going to kill
1: you before we had sex. Eee. Quirrell is back. Quirrell Jr. Actually, it's Quirrell Jr. Quirrell is in the original book, Live and Let Die, but because they killed him off in the first movie, Dr. No* they were just, I guess, too lazy to write a new character. So bam, we get someone Bond knows instead.
5: I completely
6: forgot about this character. So we're on a boat and Rosie is getting changed uh, and hangs up her clothing on a hook, which opens up to a little secret compartment. And I'm not gonna lie, that seems extremely short-sighted to have one of the only things that you can hang anything on as a pull-down lever. After Bon finds the Woman of the Cups tarot card or whatever, and before he gets on the boat, there's just this interesting little writing on the wall that says, Dr. Kananga reminds, The tourist is our friend. His welfare is our concern. Uh, Nothing to really say about that, but I do feel like that was just a neat little addition in the film. Something of note, and call me wrong if I am, but about 45 minutes into the movie, we're at the picnic scene with Rosie. This is the first time Bond pulls his own gun. And I do believe there's only been one other time where he has even held a gun. So far, his gun has been removed or he has not been in a situation where he could even reach for it. Again, I like this about the movie because it feels less over-the-top, like it is making life more difficult for Bond.
7: My favorite vehicle in this film is actually when he paraglides into the base for the first time to seduce Miss Solitaire.
5: So here we have one of the most ridiculous hand glider scenes in film history. So now Bond, having slept with and seen
0: Rosie dispatched of, Uh, goes back to Kananga's Island. He skydives in, which is kind of a
5: fun scene. Bond is just casually hanging out in the air, smoking a cigar. He's like smoking a cigar while he's paragliding. All right, whatever. Uh,
0: And then he goes and finds Solitaire. So one of my favorite
2: villain moments is when Bond is like sitting there playing with Solitaire's tarot cards. And he's like, the cards say we'll be lovers. Go ahead, pick a
6: card. Any card, you do trust them, don't you? When Bond meets Solitaire for the second time, the only thing I could think of is Yu-Gi-Oh, because I feel like he's asking if she believes in the heart of the cards. And
0: she's like, "Well, they've never lied to me before." Who she has this like big, like, or like ornate the headdress and cape and stuff she wears while she's reading cards but it's just like it's fake it like pops open and she steps out of it and bond sits in i don't know it's goofy and weird and so she picks a card sure enough it's the lover's card
2: they begin making out the music swells and we hear an amazing orchestral version of the movie's theme and you know like our heroes just like he's really he's he's getting the girl he, he's getting the girl and um then he reveals that he stacked the deck it only contains
4: lovers cards oh bond you actually use the card trick to trick her into having sex with you you piece of shit bond <laughs> you piece of shit uh, i mean we saw you go into the tarot shop earlier you must have bought a load of tarot cards took all of the Lover's cards out and then put them into a special deck, but knowing they would match the deck that Solitaire was using. But listen, earlier in, earlier
0: today in the movie, he slept with Rosie and then saw her murdered. And then he comes here with a fake tarot deck full of Lover cards so that he can trick solitaire using her religious beliefs into having sex with him in the same day that he had sex with rosie before planning to murder her or excuse me he had sex with rosie after planning to murder her so he had sex with her and then was gonna kill her and then he comes here and uses this woman's religious beliefs to seduce her but yeah you are a premeditated piece of shit
2: they sleep together and then she loses her virginity powers and puts
6: both of their lives in danger now bond gets solitaire Do you remember the scene after he finds the Woman of the Cups tarot card, then goes into that tarot shop? It seems like a useless scene, but now we are shown that there was a point to that. He bought a ton of the lover's cards to stack the deck in his favor. Uh This film does show clear occult magic as something that exists, and yet Bond uses his coy and his intelligence to play with it and this is my favorite villain moment because james bond is the villain bond and solitaire are now sneaking off to find something and kananga is completely okay with this so long as bond doesn't find whatever the hidden something is the exact quote is if he finds it kill him Why would you not kill him prior to that? This guy has been a pain in your butt this whole time and has now stolen your woman.
7: He drives a bus and causes police on the island to just go off the road and just flying off their bikes and into rivers and stuff. We have now hit the first scene that starts making me
0: question things. Wow, that handbrake turn in the bus was epic. Once again, this movie does love itself a chase scene. And uh, there's two back-to-back brilliant chase scenes at this point in the movie. Uh, the first is Bond and Solitaire have found the heroin plants and they're like, oh, this is a little bit strange. And then they wander into a town and there's like cops on motorcycles and cops in cars. And Bond's like, these cops totally all work for the baddies. We got to escape. What are we going to do? Oh, hey, a double-decker bus. And there is a chase scene in this movie, James Bond Live and Let Die, where James Bond gets into a chase scene in a double-decker bus. And it's very, very good. Like, yeah, I could watch that over and over again. My favorite two moments in this chasing. The first is uh, Bond needs to flip around because there's his motorcycles chasing him and they're going to catch up with him. So he's got to do something. So he drives across a wet patch of road and uses the water to be able to swing the bus around and spin it 180 degrees. And then the two motorcycle cops crash because water and motorcycles is a bad combination.
4: Like, you know, I'm going to give a clap to the stunt team that did that. Fantastic
6: this bus scene. I'll give it to him that a bus might be the only thing you can find to just take, might already have the keys in it, and get around. Uh, The only super absurd thing that he does is that drift, but I was still willing to let this go because you literally need a vehicle to get somewhere, and it is a fairly short interaction. You know, cool, we haven't
0: lost it yet. Um, my second favorite moment in this chase scene is the fact that it is silent. Like there I mean not silent, you know, there's sound effects but there's no music happening right up until Bond turns down a street that has a warning that there's a low bridge up ahead and just as he does that the freaking theme song kicks in with a da 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 da
1: da it's so good.
7: He eventually tears the roof off this double-decker bus and crashes a cop car.
1: There are only a few vehicles in this movie, none of them being an Aston Martin.
6: We're back in New Orleans and Bond is willing to hop into any taxi there is. Uh, Who cares about safety? And we hit my favorite character in this whole film, Arnold Williams as cab driver one. The scene in New York was very short and short-lived, and it's like, ah, you know, I wish they had more of this character. And then he comes back, and the whole time, he's just referring to Bond as Jim. And this guy is great. I I wish more villains would down-talk Bond by calling him Jim.
0: So they escape in the bus, right, they get in the boat, they get in a cab, and then immediately get taken to an airfield because, oh, they've been captured again. So once again, they are fully in the hands of the baddies who have a perfect opportunity to murder James Bond dead. But instead of killing him, they're going to take him up in an airplane and throw him out of the airplane
7: at 10,000 feet when they could just murder him right here. There's also a chase in a plane after a little bit he... Tears the wings off the plane, which is just hilarious. At one point, and this is probably my favorite, uh, James Bond
2: is like taxiing around at a small airport in a like propeller plane acting like a flying instructor for this poor woman that's
0: just there for her flying lesson but no james bond escapes and gets in a plane and drives this little like this old woman is here for her flight lessons and james bond gets in the plane with her and they drive this little plane all around the airport and get into a chase scene with cars in an airplane bond just jumps in her plane she's like who the
2: hell are you and um Bond's like, uh, I, yeah, I'm your flying instructor for the day. Um, and she's like, okay, what's our lesson plan? And he's like, we're just going to wing it. And it's ridiculous.
6: And they just drive around aimlessly. Bond escapes like he always does in an airport. Kind of an interesting place to set this up. And the the movie loses it. This is the part where it really drops the ball, is you're having a plane car chase Uh, there's
2: cars chasing them and like these cars like they're not going fast like bond is not going very fast you don't go that fast just taxing like they're doing
0: and um and in the end bond gets away but the bad guys have gotten solitaire so i don't know why he didn't just fly the plane away in the first place but it's goofy it's fun it very strongly echoes that chasing in the parking lot from the last movie like these cars are just
2: running into every plane in this airport and just destroying everything inside people jump out in front of the plane with guns like they're gonna shoot it and then they're immediately like like no this is a bad idea there is a propeller on that plane like it's gonna cut me a lot really bad and like eventually bond uh, flies through a hangar door as they're shutting them the wings get
4: ripped off wow uh, my aircraft planes are really
2: flimsy aren't they and the woman he's giving the lessons to is she's like holy shit that's that's exactly what her voice sounds like um yeah and it's just so silly and stupid
6: I, i enjoyed it and bond in previous films it seems like he's fairly handy with operating aircraft and can never seem to get this thing off the ground but in general this is where you suddenly realize you know
5: scooby and the gang are back as goofy as this plane scene is, it's also kind of hilarious. It's ridiculous. This it, it, there's no reason for this chase scene to be here except for
0: they were just like, "You know what America loves right now? America loves black exploitation movies and chase scenes. Let's make one movie that's got it both."
6: I think it works. So the movie has officially lost it, but there are still some good parts. Well, later on, we hear in the background the owner of the
2: airport like arguing with the CIA about like how expensive, you know, about all the damage
5: and stuff. So that's a nice touch. So when Bond walks into the New Orleans club, it sounds like they just walked into a very different kind of movie. Bound tricker, wow wow So now Bond is not only
0: motivated to find out what's going on with Kananga and Mr. Big, but he's also motivated to rescue Solitaire, which leads him straight back into Kananga's lair. He goes to another of those cafes. He gets pulled down through a, a floor that retracts and pulls his table underneath this time.
4: Now this is the second time (laughs) Bond's gone to one of these fillet of fish shops, uh, or fillet of flay and um, they've had some sort of trapdoor or revolving wall. Like, how much mechanical equipment would you need? Especially thinking about this in the 70s. Like, you know, they don't have as much small stuff as we have nowadays. Like, how much stuff would that need? How much would that have cost? Like, Jesus. Like, think of the logistics and having to build all this stuff, getting the workmen in. Like, it's just... This is bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Also, kind
5: of an interesting touch to have um like a cover of the theme song in the movie. Felt kind of meta.
1: I like Kananga in this movie.
5: So we're led to believe that the villain of the movie is Dr. Kananga. And there's Mr. Big
0: saying that uh Solitaire belongs to his friends Kananga and that she's, you know, she's so special because she can see the future, but only because she's a virgin. And did you touch that? Which is a just gross
1: line. Uh, one of my favorite moments is when he's questioning Bond as Mr. Big. And when Bond refuses to answer and only talk to Kananga, he pulls off his freaking face.
5: But the twist is that Mr. Big is Dr. Kananga. And then Mr. Big
0: peels his face off because it turns out Kananga and Mr. Big are the same person. Which is kind of weird. <laughs>
6: This scene where Bond is being interviewed by Mr. Big, Mr. Big reveals himself to being Kananga, which is kind of whatever.
5: I felt like that reveal wasn't really earned, but I honestly didn't see that coming. It just, it begs the question why? As with a lot of things in this movie.
1: Because regardless who he is, ruthless dictator, drug ruthless drug dealer, he isn't afraid to get his hands dirty.
6: But it does also establish that Kananga also does not understand Solitaire's magic, only that it works. He doesn't have any genuine love there, but he is genuinely worried about losing this tool that is so pivotal for his work.
1: And he follows in the great footsteps of villains of old, and lays out his entire plan of bond in a very eloquent speech.
7: Uh, probably the best villain moment is when President Kananga reveals that he is also Mr. Big. Surprise! They're the same person. <laughs>
5: So Kananga has a guy who does his maniacal laugh for him. Love it.
1: It was actually a great reveal. I loved him pulling off the makeup. Later on in the same scene, he tricks Solitaire and Bond and figures out Solitaire is working against him. And it even makes Bond think he's going to be let go.
7: And his whole plan to flood the uh, heroin market and run the up, the competition out of business and just get a whole bunch of people in America addicted to heroin. Of note,
1: the street value of his heroin, $1 billion in 1973, is worth $5,774,527,027. Mr.
5: Big's evil villain plot is basically to give out free heroin.
7: It, it, it's very villainous.
5: While yes, that would qualify as, you know, maybe something that you shouldn't do. It also doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense from a business standpoint.
1: That's not bad loss if you can cut out all your competition. I mean, the guy runs an island. That can't be that much money for him.
0: So here Kananga has uh, Bond right, right in his grass. He can just murder him. And instead he sends T. to take him to an alligator farm that's also their heroin operation to move, murder him there instead of doing it when he has his hands on him. Is that... Is that four or five times now?
6: And now we go back into the trophy instead of just killing Bond right then and there. We're going to let him get eaten by alligators and crocodiles. And I will say, as someone who grew up wanting to be a herpetologist and who loved Steve Irwin, I am glad that this film clarified that there were both alligators and crocodiles and their
5: differences in the water. So we got the amazing alligator scene in the bayou.
1: That being said, there's a terrible scene in which James Bond runs across a bunch of crocodiles.
0: So when they get to the alligator farm, uh, Teehee gives Bond a little tour first. He's like, check it out, this is, uh, this is where we make our heroin. So you can see we've got like a very ornate lab set up here. Definitely would be a shame if this building caught on fire. And out here we have our alligators. They're very vicious. One of them ate my arm. That's how come I only have one arm. Um, over here we've got a flat screen television that retracts into the ceiling and behind it is an aquarium. So, you know, when you have company over, you can put the TV away and you just have this aquarium full of ornate fish to look at but then when companies hear that comes down and you've got the tv screen and then over here we have my closet that's just for claws it's just a closet for claws i have another closet where i keep my suits but this one's just for claws Uh, it's very nice thank you for coming
5: to my alligator farm and mtv cribs i honestly think this is one of the most clever uses of a gadget or should i say non-use of a gadget and then he puts bond in the middle of the alligator pit and doesn't shoot him and doesn't stay to watch. He just
0: leaves Bond standing in the middle of the alligator pit and goes, ha ha, this time he will die. This time, surely the sixth time I believe that we've got James Bond in a very easy to murder position, he will be murdered without our interference. We'll just leave him alone and he will definitely die.
7: But my favorite escape is actually after he gets captured and he's uh, taken through the drug warehouse. Bond
5: uses his watch to, uh, to try and pull a boat towards him
7: in the swamp uh he tries to bring a canoe a metal canoe towards him and it's tied off so it actually doesn't go anywhere and he's stuck
5: bond is on this little tiny island in the middle of an alligator infested swamp and he's, he's trying to pull this metal boat towards him with his cue watch um, <laughs> but he gets snagged because it's tied down on a rope
1: But can we talk about how powerful that magnet is? If Bond can move a boat from across a pond, say like 30 feet, I don't see how it couldn't peel the fillings out of someone's teeth from 5 feet away. And has a saw on it? I mean, how big is the battery? Do you have to charge it every day or something? This is back in the 70s.
7: He runs across the top of several crocodiles to escape being uh, eaten alive, essentially. That's great. So Bond runs on the backs of the alligators and he escapes and he gets away and he burns down
0: the whole arrow in operation. And if you weren't sure that the movie had completely lost it, by
6: this point, running atop the alligators, done. It's over. All my respect is
1: gone. And it will eventually be the first amount of cheese in the more series of films. I
5: love when they kind of play with the tropes a little bit like that. It's like, well, of course Bond's going to use this gadget to get out of this one. But then it's great when it doesn't quite work out for him. Now, if you've been listening
0: to our recap here and you're thinking, man, this movie sounds like it has a lot of chase scenes, don't you worry. We haven't even gotten to the chase scene yet because what happens next is James Bond jumps in a boat to escape from the baddies and another baddie jumps in a boat. Some other baddies jump in a car and everybody starts a big boat chase.
6: The boat chase is pretty fantastic. I'm gonna start this boat chase off by saying something nice. This is really cool. It's very inventive. This is a fun chase in many, many ways. And I thought this could have been one of the strongest chases in recent Bond films.
1: But it wasn't because of the boats. It was just entertaining watching the cops destroy every law enforcement vehicle in the state of Louisiana.
4: But it has problems. Oh, I'm sure lots of people are going to have lots to say about the uh, the police arrest. (laughs) But the chase scene was excellent. And I don't think actually Bond has actually had any reason to use his gun yet in this film. It's all just you know, bomb, being bombed and being really skillful. But yeah, the uh, the boat chase, which is feels like it's like 20 minutes long and then there's just more and more police getting involved and um, yeah, these police are not very intelligent people. Um, <laughs> is that an accurate portrait of the American police system? I don't know. <laughs> no comment from me. This speedboat chase
0: is absolutely bonkers. And the chase scene is great because it's just this intense boat chase where, like, boats are flying down the water and then they go up on land. There's a part where Bond takes his boat up on land to get the baddie to fall. on. The baddie's boat ends up falling in a pool. Bond jumps out of his boat, jumps
5: back in another boat, and takes off again. Those boats wouldn't have survived the first time they jumped on the land.
1: I kept thinking about how banged up those boats would have been in real life if they have gone over the land so many times.
6: Um, also, boats can fly across a good... What, 70 feet of land? It's very good. It's very fun. It's very ridiculous. Uh, Maybe that is something that's possible, but this was stretched out so long. Uh, I was even okay with that very first boat hop. It was cool. It was fun. And they did it like four times. Uh, There was a wedding, apparently,
0: in the middle of the bayou.
1: Also, that
0: wedding. Ugh, this must have been so miserable in that heat. And... It's what makes this movie, like this chase scene, I feel like is the most memorable thing from this movie.
6: For starters, from the time James Bond hops into the boat till the time he is seen out of the boat is 13 minutes. We are introduced to a whole slew of characters who have no meaning whatsoever.
1: The most capable henchman's name was Adam. Mm, yep. Just Adam. He was the guy who chased down Bond uh, first in the car, then the boat. Then he gets away from J.W. Pepper and he coordinated all the attacks, and eventually ended up stealing Bubba's boat. I mean, he was on top of it for a while before he died.
6: Somehow, the main gangster
0: knew about Billy Bob and just went to his address and grabbed his boat. And we meet one of the most important characters in the Roger Moore era of the James Bond franchise, Sheriff J.W. Pepper.
5: Here we have... Sheriff
0: J.W.
1: Let's talk about J.W. Pepper for a minute.
0: Now, Sheriff J.W. Pepper is a white hillbilly. He's a redneck, southern, racist hillbilly caricature. He is the most caricatured character in this movie, which if I have to give this movie credit for its attempt to not be horribly racist while making a racist movie, it is that they made the most ridiculous character a dumb white guy. And... You know, the world needs more of pointing out how terrible dumb white guys are. Unfortunately, he's just kind of silly and not like they don't show him. I yeah, I assume he's racist. I don't know that they actually. Well, he does pull up anyway. He's awful. He's the worst. He's just here for uh, comedic purposes. And it's it's OK. But really, he works because the backdrop of this chasing is so good that having him to spat out ridiculous like
5: rants in the middle of it works OK. All kinds of stereotypes in this movie.
1: Okay, I love and I hate him. I get the comic relief stuff, and he seems at one point just to be racist caricature, and it's sometimes just a sad sack. It gets worse when he shows up in the next movie. But at least then he's, like, getting culture. This time he's showing people how dumb Southerners are. I mean, over the radio he's supposed to go kill a rabid dog after he pulls over Adam. So there's no real crime in his parish. He's just a sheriff over no one.
6: But it just dragged out so long and they were just shoving a whole other entire movie this was a fast and the furious movie in 13 minutes
0: so now that bond is really on the case because he's got to rescue solitaire because if there's nothing that motivates james bond like a woman we get into the real voodoo
4: of it all now it's voodoo time
5: so let's talk about this ritual
6: scene here All right, now we get into that uncomfortable territory, the
0: six-minute-long tribal dance sequence. We've seen a couple shots of this voodoo um, cult. I don't know. It's not a cult. I don't know what to call it. They are murdering people. Anyway, I'm uncomfortable with the voodoo scenes because I don't imagine that they hired a practitioner of voodoo to verify the validity of the imagery that they use throughout this movie. It feels like appropriation, and it just, it, it seems bad and problematic.
6: This movie released in 1973, and I feel like at this point in time, they should have had a better grasp or respect of showing tribal dances on screen. There should be enough information out there maybe this is exactly what it looked like. I could be totally wrong, but I'm just gonna say based on what they were doing on screen, none of this is accurate. And this is all total BS.
0: But I do have to give the scene where Bond is sneaking up on the voodoo ritual a little bit of credit for Bond's use of uh, black slacks and a black turtleneck because that's a very good look for James Bond. And and I like it here. Roger
5: Moore looks good in that outfit. What exactly is Baron Samedi's role in all
4: this? <sighs> okay. It's the Baron. Baron Zimondi was an interesting character in this movie. Um, I'm pretty sure this guy still gives me nightmares. Oh, nightmare. (laughs) Tyler, I'm in a room. (laughs) But yeah, I think somewhere between uh, watching this film as a kid with my dad and watching um, (laughs) Temple of Doom, also with my dad, (laughs) gave me huge nightmares of men with skull faces and waving snakes in my faces and uh, (laughs) trying to rip my heart out.
1: Again, always seem to be traveling around Kananga, Where is he's at, dressed up as a normal person or as a crazy voodoo henchman. So Baron
0: Samdi is this character that's shown up throughout the movie. Um, weirdly, he was at the hotel, starring in a musical number at the hotel, but he's also actually part of Mr. Big slash Kananga's operation. And also maybe is actually a supernatural figure who has the ability to come back from the dead because he definitely dies in this scene. Just remember that he's dead. He gets thrown into a pit full of snakes who eat him alive. He dead.
1: All these things infants have like side jobs or something because he was shown working at a hotel, entertaining the honkies and actually, you know, sacrificing people on the side.
4: <laughs> and suddenly coming out of the ground. Um, yeah. And, uh, having clay heads. Uh, yeah. Oh, terrifying, man. <laughs> this film absolutely scared the living with Jesus out of me when I was a kid. Does he always have
5: like a fake body double or is are they implying that he's actually supernatural?
1: Ah,
4: he's coming out of the ground.
1: Oh, God. I did like the little gadget they used for him to bring it from the grave in the voodoo village to trick the people.
4: Oh, why is his head made out of clay? This, this is so confusing. He looks so real coming out of the ground.
1: Now, to compound,
6: the problem with this scene is that the witch doctor appears, gets his head blown off, and it turns out it's a duplicate. And then the real witch doctor appears, and it takes all of about a minute to do this guy in. So you have six minutes of complete awkwardness, and then what is clearly one of the strongest villains in the film is just done in immediately.
4: Whew, yeah, man, that Baron, even watching it now, as a kid, I see him and I'm just like, mm, please go please, get off my screen, scary, man.
1: I have one bone to pick though. He's playing the flute at one point, and then suddenly it's a radio. That's not how flutes work, sir.
5: That snake right there is super fake.
4: Ooh, a high-tech underground voodoo lair.
5: I gotta hand it to him. Kananga's cave lair is awesome. Yeah, this is definitely a Bond film. (laughs)
3: Favorite vehicle? Uh, It would have to be the monorail. This, I think, is our second monorail of the James Bond series. Uh, They really... Must love just building a monorail and underground lair sets.
1: Actually, Kananga has more gadgets than some of the other villains. For some reason, the Pimpmobile has a silenced crossbow dart in the mirror with a TV to aim. How often does that come in handy? All of his restaurants have trick booths and tables. He has an underground monorail for some reason. Okay, <coughs> blowfeld. Hidden rooms, a Mr. Big makeup kit, a complete army of people working him for him in every city and country he operates in. I have a feeling that Kananga's only trying to sell drugs so he can have more stuff.
2: The best kill in this movie is um, it's when Bond takes down the main villain,
6: Kananga. Bond kills the witch doctor at an hour and 47 minutes, at which point most films from this era would already be over. But it's not, because Kananga needs to talk again. They really should have called him Mr. E for exposition. I don't know that I've seen another Bond villain that just likes to keep talking every time he sees this guy. Just shoot him.
0: You have let him live so many times. So Bond has Solitaire now, they infiltrate Kananga's lair, they find out that he's got this shark pit, and they get captured. And Kananga's got another opportunity to murder James Bond, and instead he ties him to a hook and cuts his arm so that there's blood falling in the water and slowly lowers the hook into a tank full of sharks that are going to eat him alive. Instead of just shooting him,
4: just shoot James Bond in the head. No, oh, Kataganga, why Why are you falling into the trap of having elaborate kills? Like, Why tie him to a thing and Cut him and descend him into sharks. All that's going to happen is that he's going to put something inflatable inside you and you're going to fly up to the sky and explode.
5: We have another awesome gadget in this movie, which leads us to one of the dumbest deaths in the entire Bond franchise, in the entire series history. I'd like to talk a little
0: bit about Chekhov's gun. Uh, The theory of Chekhov's gun is that uh, if you have a gun in the first act of a play, then the gun has to go off by the third act of the play. Now this could also be called Q's gadgets. You could call this trope because if Q introduces you to a gadget at the beginning of the movie, you better believe that the gadget is going to come into play by the end of the movie. Now Q's not in this movie, but M does give Bond a new watch from Q Labs that is magnetic. And Bond has used it a couple times throughout the movie. He's used it to undress a woman. He tried to use it to pull a boat towards him in the the gator part, but that didn't work out. But he. He's reminded us that this magnet exists, so of course it's going to come pl- into play here to save James Bond at the last minute, and it comes into play by being a saw. The magnetic watch is a saw. This is like if Chekhov pulled the gun off of, well, Chekhov was the playwright, but anyway, it's like if Chekhov's gun was actually a telescope that saved the day in the third act. Like if, it's, if the watch is a saw, you have to tell us the watch is a saw in order for it to foreshadow the fact that the watch is going to be a saw later on.
1: My favorite moment with Whisper was when he tried yelling, Watch out! in the underground base, but nobody could hear him.
2: They're fighting. Uh, Kanega was trying to lower Bond and Solitaire into a shark tank. And so uh, Kanega and Bond are in
0: the shark tank, like fighting. Bond's bleeding, attracting the shark so bon gets free he's fighting kananga they go back and forth they're in the water they're out of the water and hey did we mention that bon's got a shark gun that's that's got is a bullet that is full of uh compressed air and so when you shoot into something it makes it swell up real big and pop it in the sky he's got this
2: compressed air thing that's used in like i don't know anti-shark weaponry the compressed gas pellet um sure and <laughs>
6: shoves it in kananga's mouth Uh, shoves his head underwater to keep this mystery machine rolling Bond shoves a compressed gas pellet into Kananga's mouth to defeat him and Kananga just starts
2: like filling up like a balloon and I know you think I'm joking he fills up like
5: a balloon it causes him to expand into a balloon
6: floats to the top of like the
5: layer and he
6: floats Uh, I guess it was filled with helium. I'm not entirely sure what the use would be. Hits the ceiling and explodes
2: like a balloon. There's no blood. There's no guts. That's what he does to Kanaga. He shoots him and he swells up real big and goes floating up the ceiling and then pops. He's just a balloon. That then explodes. And that is how the big bad is killed in this movie.
4: Oh wow, that actually happened. (laughs) He swallowed the inflatable thing and flew up into the sky and exploded. It's weird
5: that single scene encompasses the entire tone of the roger moore bond movies but i i thought that could have been such a good scene uh
6: he could have just blown up in the water and then there would just be like red coming up and the sharks would be going crazy kind of like they did in thunderball just imagine
2: if he exploded and like blood and guts went over like just all over everyone
0: be a, a totally different movie Now, this movie has had a lot of James Bond hanging out in a boat, so I guess uh, Roger Moore's feeling a little seasick. So instead of uh, putting Bond and the girl on a boat at the end of the movie, they're on a train. And we get this nice, peaceful little montage of them going across the countryside, playing cards, having sex. Oh, wait, what's that? It's a clawed hand cutting out of a mailbag on the train because T. Hee's not dead. He's come back to kill James Bond. The other guy whose name I haven't mentioned yet is T.
6: Teehee, apparently is his name, is Julius Harris with the metal arm. He and the Baron Samedi both kind of felt like the odd job of this film, but because there were two, it was now odd and odder, and neither one really got to shine, except for that forced fight scene ending. How do you not know that there is an eight-foot-tall man with a metal arm in your U.S. mail sack?
0: I think they were intending for this fight scene to be a um, echo of the fight scene from For Russia With Love, but the whole fight scene centers around T. He just trying to like stab his weird little claw arm at James Bond and the claw arm doesn't look good. And so the fight scene just doesn't feel good. And James Bond ends up, he cuts the wires in the claw arm and it clamps on the window and Bond throws him out the window. And then Solitaire's like, oh my God, what happened? And he goes, just being disarming wait that's my sean connery i don't have roger mark he goes just being disarming sweetie or sweetheart sweetheart darling darling probably darling anyway that was his quip was just being disarming because he threw the guy out his window and the arm stayed behind
6: another little fun note about julius harris the six minute long voodoo dance scene made me think of 1933's king kong as it turns out three years after live and let die release julius harris was a main character in 1976's king kong re-release
5: so after one last scuffle with kananga's henchman tihi and his claw-handed prosthetic bond and his girl throw him out the side of a train and decide to make out like nothing just happened
6: the greatest villain in this movie and the most underutilized would be the Baron Samedi, the witch doctor. I feel like this guy in the film, it kind of shows that he's just there for the fun of it. He can't be killed. He really is a witch doctor. He
0: has an understanding of how tarot works. He seems to just toy with that. The movie ends with Baron Samedi sitting on the front of the train because he's not dead because the supernatural exists in the world of James Bond. And with the end of this film showing that
6: he's still alive, to me, that sort of proves this guy's the real deal, that he has been the true threat all along and just enjoying the fun of being with Kananga. But they really underutilized that character. And
5: I, I felt so bad. That could have been such a good, strong character in this film. And right as the movie ends, we see Baron Semeti on the train laughing maniacally for no goddamn reason
4: see this is why this film scared me the voodoo man is still alive at the end like he kills him in the middle of the film puts him in a coffin full of deadly snakes but he's still there on the train
5: and that's how the movie ends and no it's not a cliffhanger we don't see this guy again he doesn't do anything he just looks cool and laughs creepily
2: final thoughts on the movie it's pretty bad it has a great theme song and it's got some good
6: parts like the action and it's pretty good everything about the end of the film from whisper to the really bad fight scene with kananga to the kind of awkward shoved in fight scene on the train it just this movie ends on a very slow and sour note It's way too long, there's a good variety in like the different types
2: of action scenes you see, like I said earlier, there's boat chases, there's car chases, bus chases, on ground plane chases, there's a train chase, there's crocodiles, um,
0: yeah, there's sharks, like it's, it's a very crazy movie. And that's Live and Let
5: Die, it's, you know, it's got some fun moments, it's actually got a lot of fun moments. For once it was kind of nice to not have Spectre or Blofeld behind everything, it's a good change of pace in that regard. It's also a double-edged sword because the connected through line was cool, but then again, the one-off missions are also kind of one of the reasons that the series is still going strong after all these years. As much as fans like myself enjoy the formula, it can also be a detractor at times. If it's not handed right, it can feel very by the numbers. But I think between it having a plot that seems
0: like a smaller scale plot than the kind of world ending plots that we've gotten used to from Blofeld and the fact that so much of this movie is mired in, um, being of its time. We've had that with the Sean Connery movies in the terms of like a lot of misogyny and things like that. But this movie really has a lot of issues in that. I mean, it is explicitly a black exploitation movie made by white people. And that just does not feel good.
3: What would I change? about this movie? Knowing that this is from an era of black exploitation movies, I would have really liked them to take the chance to make one of the stronger and more positive characters a black actor. Why couldn't Solitaire have been a black woman?
1: Probably going against most of the other podcasters, I don't think this movie is as problematic as it could be. There's a solid African-American cast, they show black leaders, and even in the boat chase, the bad guys get the upper hand against the Annette cops
2: and i know it's a trope of bond to take like whatever's popular at the time and like integrate it into the bond universe and at the time black exploitation was very
0: popular
3: it would have been great if they had the new felix for this movie be a black actor
0: it didn't feel good when i watched it before it certainly doesn't feel good in the climate of the world today so live and let die is is an interesting movie that is kind of ruined by the context that it presents i mean it if, if this wasn't a exploitation movie if you took all of the action and all of the gags from this movie and put them in a different plot i think it would work a lot better i get what they were going for with this movie but i just think making making a movie
2: where 99.9 percent of the black characters are villains and 99.9% of the white characters are heroes. It's just bad.
3: There was a large cast, which for the time was groundbreaking, but also very trending because of exploitation.
5: And it's great that they had such a diverse cast. Just the fact that they made almost every single African-American character a villain or ineffectual is just, it's just not okay
3: where they fell short in this movie is they're all bad guys. The problems would be
1: like the voodoo village and the dated language. But we're coming off three straight consecutive years of Shaft movies.
2: I've read some justifications where people are like, but Kananga's like a very capable villain. He's not, you know, like fallen over himself. Like he's not a joke. He's a very jokey death. But I, I still don't think that that
0: makes this whole setup good or if you had more black characters that weren't evil and more evil characters that weren't
5: black. It's definitely progress compared to what you have in the book, but it's pretty clear that this is the early 70s and we still have a long way to go. Then again, unfortunately, the same could still be said of America in 2020. Then you could still have had it be kind of build on the tropes of exploitation
0: without explicitly having it be like black people are bad which seems to be the message of this movie and makes this movie probably not worth watching anymore
3: and if they really wanted to make a difference they would have even just for this movie made james bond a black actor
2: but like i said this is the only james bond movie i've seen so this is my favorite and least favorite james bond movie
1: James Bond will return in, oh god The man with the golden gun Yay, podcasting
5: Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Assemble or joining our Discord server link in the show notes Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you.
0: This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network.
1: Follow us on Twitter
0: at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com.
5: podcasters assemble will return in the man with the golden
4: gun he's still there with the train man it's, it's terrifying i mean what is going on Like, he's got the skull face he's got voodoo he's everywhere he's got a weird whistle oh, too it's too too scary for me sorry i'm out i'm out i'm done